Dark Winter Nights True Stories from Alaska is produced with support from the University of Alaska Fairbanks Communication and Journalism Department. UAF Kojo, tell great stories. Greetings, humans. My name is Faculty for 2000. Due to budget cuts at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, I have been selected as a cost-effective replacement for your regular host, UAF Journalism Department Chair Robert Prince. I'm programmed to be twice as funny at one half the cost. I also spend much less time pretending to work when I'm really watching YouTube. So it is with great pleasure that I welcome you to Dark Winter Nights. Truth oh, stories. No, 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 no. Ah, the time they tried to replace me with a robot. That was the scene at our April 2016 live event in Fairbanks. What an awkward situation. Speaking of awkward situations, that's the subject of today's episode. Well, it's awkward situations. Anyway, I'm Rob Prince, professor of communication and journalism at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and your host for Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. First off, Lorian Nettleton tells us about the time he was auctioned off in the Talkeetna Bachelor Auction. I'd been in town for about two months, really wanted to kind of make a, a good impression on people, earn their confidence as a serious news reporter. For some reason, being conspicuously drunk in the middle of the day dressed as a Viking really kind of put a ding in that first impression. And Matthew Sturm tells us a story about having to improvise his way out of a tough wilderness situation and deciding the best way to do it was to get naked. We stripped off all of our clothes and stark naked, put on our rubber boots, grabbed the front and back of the kayak, and began to negotiate our way down these chutes. Lorian Nettleton is a self-described okay guy who has dropped trees, waxed skis, and produced radio stories in Fairbanks and Talkeetna. He told this story at our Dark Winter Nights Light event in January 2016, Light in the sense that it was small. Trust me, it was not light outside. Lorian had just moved to Talkeetna, which is between Anchorage and Fairbanks on the Parks Highway, and is allegedly the town that inspired the 90s TV drama Northern Exposure. As a more or less eligible bachelor, Lorian was invited to participate in the raucous Talkeetna bachelor auction. I'll let him describe it. So I get to town in October, and I start meeting people like you do when you're new in town, and especially like you do when you gotta meet everybody in town anyway. And almost without fail, everybody that I talked to said at some point, so of course you're going to be in the auction. And um, they were talking about the Telkeaton Bachelor auction, which was started, I think, in the early 80s. It's the first Saturday in December, dreamed up by a bunch of lonely miners and out-of-work, uh, you know, railroad guys looking for a way to bring ladies to town, liven things up in the middle of winter. And it has it since become kind of a premier charity event uh, raises hundreds of thousands of dollars for women and children in distress uh, fleeing domestic violence situations. Actually, a pretty remarkable cause and something that deserves more attention brought to it, especially in this state. Uh, but I wasn't interested. Uh, the idea of love for sale, there, these notions of some kind of bacchanalian excess, I didn't, I didn't know what it was about, but I didn't really want to do anything to do with it. And I was in a relationship with a girl in Fairbanks at the time, and she didn't... You know, she was not all about it, so that was that. <laughs> um, but 
things happen the way things sometimes do, and I found myself not in a relationship anymore. And uh, I was doing an interview about the uh, bachelor auction with the Bachelor Society president, Todd Bazalone, and he's telling me, oh, you know, it's the best party of the year. And we'll tell Keaton, I'd only been there a couple of months, but I'd already seen that these people really like to have a good time. So the best party of the year, that's got to be really something remarkable. And he said, of course, you know, it's for an amazing event. And he lays out the history of how much they've donated and how the, the money gets used. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, that's really something. And then he tells me, you know, there's this feeling you get when you're on stage in front of 400 women and they're all screaming for blood and you're the only steak in town. <laughs> and I said, well, it's for a good cause, right? <laughs> I, might, I might be able to do that. And um, so I was in and uh, I wanted to lay some ground rules for myself for the weekend, you know, okay, number one, I'm one of those people who thinks that the world is a better place when the ladies are having a good time. We want the ladies to have a good time. We're gonna, I'm gonna hold myself to the highest standards of gentlemanly conduct. And most importantly, nobody's getting to first base, not on this guy, it's just not happening. So with those kind of ground rules in mind, I step into uh, the, the weekend. Um, and it pretty quickly became apparent that uh, those ground rules were in direct conflict with each other for the rest of the weekend. Um, <laughs> I got to town at uh, 10 minutes till noon to start registering contestants for the Wilderness Women's Contest. Walk into the Fairview Inn and I pick up a clipboard and I turn to the first woman I see and trying to think what would be something charming and gentlemanly. I say, oh, you should probably register for the Wilderness Women's Contest. You might win a kiss. And um, I don't know if you've seen the Hitchcock movie, Rear Window, Grace Kelly. Every time it shows her face, it fills the frame and she's got these electric blue eyes. Well, this woman did that to me. She just filled the frame and looked at me without missing a beat and said, you could kiss me right now and I wouldn't have to compete. <laughs> I may have looked a little silly backing away completely silent, just out of my element. This is not going well. I had no response. To become the wilderness woman, you gotta uh, compete in a series of events that really kind of typify the ideal attributes of, uh, of an Alaskan woman. There's the uh, snow machine race, there's a snowshoe and pack running circuit. They gotta catch a fish with like a Velcro fish catching ball. They gotta uh, shoot a moose, which in this case is just a guy walking around in a moose suit. Um, <laughs> They got to uh, cut a bunch of firewood, cut a length of firewood with just a bow saw, and then they have to prepare a sandwich and bring a beer to a bachelor sitting <laughs> in a Lazy Boy recliner. So we got our top five contestants, and I'm just standing there, ready to be helpful or whatever, and uh, Todd Bazalone, Bachelor Society president, says, Lorian, go sit in that chair and get ready to be wet. And um, I'd, I'd heard about this, so the tradition has come that when the contestants hand off a beer and a sandwich to the, uh, the bachelor in the chair, the idea is to get more beer on them than in them. And knowing this, I had this kind of uh, a white Tyvek painter's suit covered in hearts that was left over from a previous event. <laughs> Just sitting in the trunk of my car, you know, next to the jumper cables and the tire chains. And I also had this Viking helmet, which I thought would be appropriate, also next to the tire chains and jumper cables like you do. You never know when you're going to need it. So I go, and there it was. The uh, early afternoon sun of a December day in Talkeetna, Alaska on Main Street, just an ordinary guy dressed like a Viking sitting in a lazy boy why, uh, while five of the most competitive, most driven 
long-legged, athletic, brunette, blonde and redhead women in Alaska are bringing me a sandwich and a beer. And I think to myself, oh, this is just the best day of my life. <laughs> the main event of the auction takes place around 8 o'clock. Uh, there's a big hall where they auction off all the guys. And only women are allowed inside the hall unless you're a guy being auctioned. So that means there's a lot of nervous dudes standing around at the bar next door just getting really antsy, not sure what's going to happen next. And they bring us over in little groups to this hallway at the back of the building called the cattle chute where you can, <laughs> you can hear everything that's going on, but you can't see anything that's going on. Everybody's getting more and more nervous. But there I was, boom, a thousand watts of uh, female screaming and things happened and there was a price sailing and then boom, I was sold for a price that my vanity agreed with. They took my picture and then threw me back out of the hall. So that was that. I mean, um, the stipulations of the auction really are just this. When uh, a bachelor gets sold to the highest bidder, he gets her a drink and a dance. And anything that happens after that is between two consenting adults. And people in town like to joke about babies born between August and September. <laughs> But, uh, so I was, you know, I was going to go and make good on uh, my end of the deal, look, and look for the lady who uh, bought me. And she was kind of a, uh, you know, mid-50s woman. She'd been having a great time, bought a couple of bachelors, actually, when I found her. <laughs> I finally caught up with her, and she turns to me, and she says, Oh, this is Doug. Doug's got a great big personality, only personality's not the word she used, but I knew what she meant. <laughs> so I wish them well. There's, uh... Something really amazing about being in a town that's completely overrun with hordes of women. It's good fun. You gotta believe me on this. It's good fun. All my expectations were completely wrong. I used to, you know, as a guy in Alaska, you, you get used to certain amounts of competition between the other guys. We're typically in the majority, uh, not in Talkeetna, not on Bachelor Auction Weekend. Every guy experiences for one night what every woman in Alaska experiences any night she goes anywhere or does anything. <laughs> and I gotta say, the women are a lot more polite about it. Just, just cackling, lighthearted laughter ringing through the town of Talkeetna. I mean, it's all good fun. Um, I saw Grace Kelly a number of times across the evening. You know, her face <laughs> didn't ever talk to her, but like I could see those blue eyes like boring at me, and I just stayed away. I made it home alone. Uh, somebody gave me a ride. It was great. Nobody got the first base. The next day, I went to go collect my car, and I thought it might be appropriate to sing love songs to every female I ran across because we want the ladies to have a good time. They took a lot of energy to you know come up here and participate. So, and I know quite a few love songs. It was going pretty well. Uh, around in the corner, boom, right into Grace Kelly, and she says she thinks it'd be a good idea to exchange numbers and keep in touch. And not even realizing what a great line this is, I honestly say, I wouldn't be any good for you. <laughs> Try it, guys, sometime. If you're... <laughs> in any case, one year later, she spent in the neighborhood of $500 to win me, and I went around proving exactly how good I wasn't for her. <laughs> That's kind of a different story, and I'm out of time. But the uh, Talkeetna Bachelor auction, it was the best day of my life. It was also the worst day of my life because of something about, I told you that I'd been in town for about two months, really wanted to kind of make a, a good impression on people, earn their confidence as a serious news reporter, somebody who can tell stories that need to be told, and somebody that people can uh, rely upon to get things right. And for some reason, being conspicuously drunk in the middle of the day dressed as a Viking really kind of Put a ding in that first impression. 
It didn't have to dominate, you know, my time there, but it wouldn't ever go away. In any case, best day, worst day of my life. Lorian Nettleton. He shared that story at our January 2016 live event in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, the Awkward Situations episode. I'm Rob Prince. Before he and his wife moved back to Alaska in 1981, Matthew Sturm had spent time on previous summers here kayaking around the state. So it was no surprise when, a couple of years later in 1983, Matthew started planning his next kayak adventure. He shared this story at our March 2016 live event. Listeners note here, he plays a little fast and loose with the made-up names for his characters. So just remember, one is the rich one, and one is the not-so-rich one. This one would be to kayak across Prince William Sound from Port San Juan to Whittier. My wife couldn't go, but I had two friends. I'm going to call them Roman and Bob for reasons you'll see. They were keen to go. And so we began to plan the trip. We would rendezvous in Anchorage, we'd buy food, and we'd head down, catch the ferry, and go to Port San Juan. What could go wrong? Well, it's surprising to me now, 35 years later, that I couldn't see the problems that were going to occur due to the very strange mix of personalities that were going on the trip. These differences now look so stark to me, but back then, I didn't, didn't see it. Um, but they were not long in becoming evident. We had no sooner rendezvoused in Anchorage than we began to see these happen. Now, for those of you who are old enough will remember, in the 1970s, 1980s, there was a strong move to move the capital from Juneau to Willow. Bob was all for that, and Roman was against it. I had warned Bob, in interest of harmony for the trip, not to bring this up. So I was sort of surprised when, in the market, before we had even left, they were at it. We got down to Seward, and we rode the ferry to Port San Juan through the night, dumped us off on the pier, and we camped in the wee hours of the morning in the rain. We awoke the next morning, soaked, and began to pack for the trip. And that's where more personality differences, and also, I would say, income differences, began to be pretty clear. Roman, he had a kayak called the Orca. It was at least 19 feet long, sea green, hydrodynamic. He had a carbon fiber paddle. This boat was designed to cut waves and breast current. I was kind of the middle guy. I had a klepper, a two-man klepper. For those who know those boats, that's the pickup truck of the kayak world. Steady, stable, slow. Bob, who had the least amount of money, from what I could tell, had found this kayak on the way to Anchorage. It, it was a slalom kayak. It was red on the top, white on the bottom, and it had the shape of a banana. It was utterly unsuitable for the trip we were about to go on, but it was all we had. So it was, we packed the boats, we pushed out from Port San Juan, and began to go down Erlington Passage. Near the south end of the passage, at the end of the day, we spied a snug cove off on the left. Um, and in that cove, there was a tar paper and visqueen shack. Bob looked at that shack, and he knew that was the only dry place in miles. So he headed for that with his gear. 
Roman, who had a much different aesthetic sense, took one look at that shack and headed out into a pristine but soaking wet field. I split the difference and went in the shack. <laughs> so as Roman struggled with his tent to put it up in all these wet weeds, he of course got soaked. Meanwhile, Bob cooked dinner. Roman came in, said, what did you cook? He looked and there was some bean glop that had been cooked. And Roman, his face fell. This, are those the beans? Yes, those are the beans. That's for burrito night. <laughs> burrito night. Somehow we had left the market and it had failed to communicate to us that this was going to be a trip that actually had menus. <laughs> the next day found us paddling up Prince of Wales Passage against a stiff current. This is when the liability of Bob's slalom boat, the banana boat, began to be apparent. Roman quickly got out in front with that hydrodynamic boat. I was able to hold the middle ground, and every time I looked back, when I could see the boat, what I mostly saw was the bottom of his boat, the white, not the red. He was twisting and turning. This was a bad situation, and I realized I needed to do something. I paddled mightily until I was nearby Roman. I still couldn't quite keep up with him, and I yelled, Roman, Roman, there's a really stiff current. We gotta slow down, Bob's having trouble. Roman said, what current? <laughs> I paddled hard again, and this time I actually caught up with him. And I said, honest, Roman, there's a lot of current. We've got to slow down. And he looked at me and he said, there's no current. At that moment, I happened to look down into the water, which was marvelously clear, and I could see kelp streaming back. And some of the kelp was being yanked out, the current was so stiff. I stopped paddling and my boat shot back as if it had been caught in a mill race. And it was then that Roman finally acknowledged begrudgingly that perhaps there was a current and he slowed down. The next run-in occurred near Icy Bay in the Chinega Glacier. That next day dawned absolutely glorious. It's that one in a thousand day that makes you happy you live in Alaska. There was sun, almost no ripples on the water. And we paddled up to the Chinega Glacier at the Calving Glacier there were blue icebergs everywhere. There were seals on ice floes. Whales were spouting. It was just wonderful. And as, as day turned to evening, we camped on a rocky shore nearby. Um, and to top it all off, there were world-class blueberries. You couldn't ask for more. Roman wandered out on the point, rocky point near the, the shore to just enjoy the scenery, the sublime scenery and the quiet of the evening. This was Bill's opportunity. I did not know that Bill had brought along with him on this trip bottle rockets. <laughs> but at that moment, he managed to light one, and it shot in a high parabolic trajectory up over my head and Roman's head. Now, Roman, being near the, the water, the gentle lapping sound of the water must have masked the passage of the bottle rocket, because the first he knew of its passage was when it exploded just a few feet in front of his face. <laughs> The concussion and the shock bowled him over backwards into a tide pool from which he emerged dripping wet and with murder in his eyes. <laughs> it was clear that a divorce was needed and fast. Fortunately, there was a way we could actually execute that on this particular expedition. Roman had made plans that some friends would fly into Jackpot Bay and they would paddle with us for a few days, then they would fly out. 
he decided, I think prudently, to fly out with them. We parted two days later after paddling up to Jackpot Bay, and it was a surprisingly sad parting, because despite the altercations over bean glop and wet and bottle rockets, the conversations in the evening had been stimulating, the scenery had been grand, the paddling had been a lot of fun. So we were sad as we saw Roman disappear into the mist as we paddled further north to Patty Bay. But my troubles were not over. Two days later, camped at the head of Patty Bay, Bob turned to me and said, I want to fish in fresh water. Now we had just paddled over 50 miles of salt water and I didn't really understand why he couldn't fish in salt water. But we'd already had a divorce in this expedition. It seemed like I should humor him. And his logistic plan was fairly sound. Patty Bay was separated from a shamey lake, a freshwater lake, by a small strip of land only about a mile wide. It looked good. We could portage into a shamey lake, paddle down the lake, and there on the north end of the lake was a big stream, almost a river. We would paddle back out that, be back into Prince William Sound, and on our way. So it was that we did the portage, and we began to paddle down the lake. Now I must admit, I was a little surprised at how little fishing Bob did. I'm not sure what was this about the fishing for fresh water, but by four o'clock that day, we found ourselves at the head of the lake where the creek flowed out. Instead of a broad navigable flow like we had expected, we found a roaring torrent of a waterway, maybe 15 to 20 feet wide, full of boulders and logs lined with steep banks and large trees. The chutes in the river were no more than three or four feet wide. It was utterly unnavigable and it was too steep to run. But there we were with two kayaks. I have to take a digression to finish the story. A few years before this trip, Bob and I were looking at climbing magazines. We had done a lot of climbing together and we liked to do that. When we were looking at these climbing magazines, we came across an article on the ancient Japanese sport of Salonbori. Now this sport is a sport in which you walk up a whitewater river. You rock climb your way up this river through waterfalls and everything. At the time we read this article, the sport was only popular in Japan, um, though today it's actually more popular. And the most interesting thing to us was the sport was practiced wearing traditional Japanese garb, a white loincloth called a fundoshi, straw sandals called waraji, and a stiff bamboo staff. Today in Japan, it's practiced wearing Gore-Tex and climbing shoes and harnesses, but the traditional way was to wear the white loincloth. It seemed to us, faced with this river too narrow and too white water to run, Swalenbori was our only choice. I suppose it was knowledge of the loincloth that led to the next decision, but we stripped off all of our clothes and stark naked put on our rubber boots, grabbed the front and back of the kayak, and began to negotiate our way down these chutes. With the kayak under each arm, we had something to keep us stable, and rarely were both of us in water over our heads. It was utterly exhilarating. We were shooting down these chutes and over and around curves, and it was just amazing. At some point during this descent, perhaps when the foam cleared and I could see in the clear water, we realized 
There were thousands of salmon in this creek and they were running upstream. This was amazing. At one point, a salmon literally jumped between the boat and my arm. But we had little time to appreciate this migration for as we whipped around another corner, this stream necked down to less than six feet wide and in a roar shot through a cement culvert over which there was a bridge and standing on the bridge were two fish and game people counting salmon. Now, they were bent over double in laughter, but I had almost no time to contemplate that for the stream shot around another corner and shot us out into a shamey lagoon. The lagoon was less than 100 feet wide and on both sides it was lined with well-dressed anglers. We had managed to find the most popular salmon fishing place in Prince William Sound. The water, however, was so cold, we really had no choice. There was no way we could tread water forever. So, somewhat nervous, we paddled to the south shore where two more fish and game people were there, also doubled over in laughter. And mustering as much dignity as we could, we exited. The fish and game employees very graciously told us that there was a trail back up to the lake where other boats stood. We thanked them, and again, with as much dignity as we could possibly muster, we headed back to get our other boat, which we ran down the stream in the same way, though prudently on that run, donning underpants. <laughs> Today, there's an elite fishing lodge on the lagoon, which was not there in 1983. The weir, which was built by Fish and Game, is still there and still being used. Um, the lodge website, if you go there now, says a shamey means place of great fishing. <laughs> Something we should have known back then. <laughs> Apparently the second largest run of sockeye and red salmon run up there. Bob and Roman, I don't believe, have seen each other, though I'm friends with them both still. And to be honest, to this day, I still cherish the memory of that time we swam with the salmon. Thank you. Matthew Sturm, he shared that story at our March 2016 live event in Fairbanks. Thanks for listening to this Awkward Situations episode of Dark Winter Nights. Today's episode was edited by Ryan Peterson. Story consultation by Lori Neufeld. We are thrilled to announce that Dark Winter Nights is returning to Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium for the first time in over a year on Saturday, November 20th at 7 o'clock p.m. You can subscribe to our e-newsletter at darkwinternights.com for details and updates. I want to thank all the listeners who wrote in to tell me they are enjoying the show. They are June from Richmond, California, Teresa from Grants Pass, Oregon, Kristen from Soldotna, Alaska, Rebecca from Raleigh, North Carolina, Marcy from Plainfield, Vermont, and Amy from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I know that's a list of all women's names, which may lead you to jump to some sort of conclusion, but let me assure you that conclusion would be wrong. How do I know? 44 years of being me, my friend. 44 years of being me. It's a Dark Winter Nights tradition to end each season with the Alaska Flag song, so here it is, as performed by the Alaska Chamber Singers, led by conductor David Hagen. Hey.
Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince. <laughs>